book of Romans and chapter 12. Romans 12 verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. As we start into a new chapter, uh, I (coughs) searched back to see when did we actually start looking at Romans together. It's as long back as 2008, December, December the 14th, if you want to know, December the 14th, 2008. And since then, we have looked at this 71 times, and this is number 72, which might sound remarkable until you look at the ministry of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who famously preached through much of Romans, he didn't complete it, when he got to chapter 12, verse 1. That was message number 297. (laughs) This is number 72. So my apologies for being so superficial going through it so quickly, sorry about that, but 297, can you believe it? Anyway, this is number 72. So chapter 12 here and verse 1. I wonder what what comes to mind when we think of God's will. What, what What does that expression, God's will, conjure up to us? I wonder if we think in terms, uh, in maybe slightly negative terms, if we're honest, we, we think God's will is likely to be difficult. We think God's will perhaps will be a bit restrictive, certainly challenging, daunting. I wonder how do we view God's will? Well, the verses that we looked at in verse 3, it says about testing and approving God's will. How, how can we view God's will in those positive kind of ways instead of being feeling, I'm not sure I can go with this, to see yeah, this is good. Well, in these verses, Paul gives us steps towards that, that stage where God's will is actually something that we find delightful. The steps towards it. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And he speaks about a response, he talks about a decision, and he talks about a process. All of those are necessary if we're going to come to this place where actually God's will is something that we welcome, something that we want to embrace. So a response, a decision, and a process. The response, well, it's obvious there in verse 1 where Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Incidentally, these three, two verses that I read out, um, so packed with content. And what I'm going to do today is look at the whole massive two verses. Superficial, I know. We're going to look at the two verses, but maybe, I don't know, maybe we'll look at it in more detail another time. But 
Paul begins by speaking about a response. This word, therefore, it, he's had 11 chapters setting out what God has done for a world that rejected him. A world that has sinned against him. A world that has chosen to worship created things rather than the creator. A world he made for his pleasure, but a world that's uniformly rebelled against him. Everyone has sinned. That's the situation. And God's wrath is against sin because God is holy. But instead of just wiping out God's creation, God devised the most amazing plan whereby people who are naturally rebels can become his children, belong to him, know him, and know all our sin is dealt with and we face an eternity with him. That's what the 11 chapters are about. Paul spells it out through those 11 chapters and concludes with that outburst of praise that we looked at last time in chapter 11 verses 33 to 36, where he just marvels at this great thing that God has done, the depth of the riches, the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. Well, we looked at that last time. Having given this burst of praise, he then says, therefore. In many ways, it would be tempting to end the Romans series at chapter 11, verse 36. To end on a high point. From him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Close the book. End of series. Oh, then, therefore. And we come into then some chapters that are all very practical. Love must be sincere. Hate what's evil. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. Think, bit of an anticlimax. After these wonderful chapters saying what God has done and then we come to this burst of praise to God and then down to earth with a bump. Yeah, literally, down to earth. How do we live this out? Very tempting to end at the end of chapter 11, but Paul doesn't do that because Paul knows that to simply stay there means Actually, none of this is affecting how we live. We've, we've got some wonderful beliefs, got hold of some wonderful truths, but so what? And to all truth, there is always a so what? How does that affect everyday life? What difference does that make? And that's what Paul is going to be spelling out. So these next chapters from 12 through to 16, as we, assuming uh, God leads us that way, as we go through those chapters, we mustn't lose sight of the first 11 chapters because all that Paul is going to say about how you live this out is in the light of what he said in chapters 1 to 11. And he says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies. At the end of the previous chapter, well, in verse 32, he says, God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. He's saying everyone is on level ground. Everyone needs mercy. There are no particularly good people. There are no people who are good enough any, in themselves for God. Everyone is on level ground. Everyone, Jew, non-Jew, whatever, the wise, the ignorant, Everyone is in a position where 
They simply need mercy. And mercy is what God has shown. And in fact, the, the word in the Greek is plural in view of God's mercies because chapters 1 to 11 are detailing the mercies of God. That God didn't reject people who rejected him. That God determined he wanted to make it possible for people to know him, that he foreordained it, he turned us round, he took hold of us, he's never going to let go of us. Oh, the mercy of God. And then uh, Paul speaks about what God has done for his people. He also speaks about individuals, individually loved by God, held by God, the mercies of God. I think it's a fact that unless we are stirred deeply by our debt to God's mercy, we're not really going to have any motivation to change, any motivation to take hold of what chapter 12, 13, 14, 15 and so on are going to speak about. It'll all just come as things we ought to do. But if we've been stirred by God's mercy, if you are stirred that God had mercy on you, if you see that your debt to that mercy, then you're going to want to live different. You're going to want to do something about it. We can get hold of truth, and that's not the same as being stirred. <laughs> oh, the mercy of God. Does it move you? Does it get you? That God loved you and he's had mercy on you. Well, Paul says, in, in view of those mercies, he says, I urge you. He's urging us to do something, a, a strong exhortation. He's not just saying, I beg you. He's saying, I urge you. And it's interesting that he has said so much about grace. He said so much about God's undeserved favor that puts us in a relationship with God that is all to do with what Jesus has done, nothing to do with what we have done. We're secure there forever. We stand in grace. Law no longer has any relevance to us, any hold upon us. We're not under law, we're under grace. You think, well, okay then. Then just leave people to enjoy the grace of God. And he's also spoken about the sovereignty of God. That it's God who chose us. It's God who turned us around. Okay, if change has got to happen then, leave it to the sovereignty of God. Just fold your arms and let them get on with it. No, he says, I'm urging you. He believes in the sovereignty of God. He believes in the grace of God. But sometimes we need exhorting. Sometimes we need a little bit of wise pressure. Pressure? I thought that was a swear word. No, no, no. He says, I'm urging you. I'm urging you to do something about it. Don't just look, he's saying, about all that we've said through 11 chapters. Don't just look and say, that's wonderful. There's a therefore. And I'm urging you, he's saying, to do something about it. Strong exhortation is not incompatible with grace. We believe in grace, but sometimes we need to be exhorted. Because otherwise we can get lazy. We know it. We need a wake-up call sometimes. And that's what Paul is issuing here. And what's he urging them to do? Well, he's urging them as their response to the wonderful grace of God, he's urging them as their response to make a decision. And what is that decision? He says, I'm urging you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy 
and pleasing to God, he says, this is your spiritual act of worship. Offer your bodies. He's saying this is the only appropriate response to all that God has done. Now, let's just take note. Paul is writing here to Christians. These are people who have already received Christ as their Savior. They have, we might say, given their lives to God. We sometimes use the expression, making a commitment. They have made a commitment. They belong to God. They know that God is their their Father. They know that Jesus is their Savior. That commitment has been made. Why then is he talking about something additional to that? Offer your bodies. What he's saying is, yeah, it's one thing to receive salvation, and that changes us forever. We are eternally saved. But we've got to actually do something practical about it. Something happens in everyday life. Now, he's already actually spoken about offering our body back in chapter, uh, chapter 6, when he's dealing with this question, do we go on sinning so that grace increases? And he's showing, no, there must be a change in the way we live. And in chapter 6, verse 12, he says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. He's already spoken then about what we do with our body. Our body can either indulge in things that are shameful and wrong, or we say, Father, I'm offering my body to you to be an instrument in your hands to do what you want. He's already spoken about it. But now he picks it up again, and he's saying, now look, this is our response to the fact that Jesus actually gave his body for us. Jesus hung on a cross. Jesus allowed himself to be scourged, to be tormented, and to be tortured to death. He gave everything. What's our response? What's our response? Well, offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him. In other words, words are not enough. Right beliefs are not enough. Promises aren't enough. It's actually saying, here I am. Your body then, it, it means all that we are. Lock, stock, and barrel, we say, I'm yours, Lord. Offer your body just the things we do physically, but it means everyday life, doesn't it? Your body, after all, I imagine, is what you go around in every day. If you do anything other than that, please tell us about it after. But it's everyday life we're talking about here. It's talking about 24 hours a day, seven days a week, where you work, the job you have, the label that you have in terms of doctor, teacher, whatever. That is what we offer to God, who we are. Nothing less than that is an appropriate response. Jesus offered himself everything that he was. He, that didn't come easily. It was a challenge. However, in Luke 22 and verse 42, Luke 22 
and verse 42, we read Jesus saying, saying, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. He's offering himself. Not my will, but yours. Now what's our response? To offer who we are. Everyday life given over to God. It's totally his. And this that we offer is a sacrifice. When a sacrifice is offered, it is totally given. You look at the Old Testament about sacrifices. A a live animal is brought and it is killed, put on the altar and burned. Totally given over to God. Now, Paul says, offer your bodies who you are 24 hours a day, seven days a week in the job you're doing. Or maybe you're, you're at home, looking, you're looking after children, you're a housewife, will you offer that to God? It's not irrelevant to God. All that we are, our whole life, we give to God, not just our prayer time, not time where, just when we read the Bible, not just church activity, everything given to God, not killed, but it's living. Because Paul, in chapter 6, has already spoken about the fact that we're buried with him in baptism and we're raised to new life. We're alive in him. We're in the resurrection life of Christ and we offer this new life that he has given to us. We say, Lord, it's for you. We're yours, Lord. You dealt with our sin, you've brought us into something new, and I've got a whole new relationship with God. All of life is transformed by that, and it's yours, Lord. Offer your body to him as a sacrifice that is living, holy, and pleasing to God. In other words, all our energy is applied to pleasing him. That's the appropriate response. Nothing less than that will do, Paul says, in view of what God has done. This whole scheme down through all of history, planning to save you. Hey, what do you do when you look at all of that? I'm yours, Lord. Here I am. You bought me anyway, but I'm giving who I am totally. My career, my marriage prospects, everything. My leisure time, my money, my body. Lord, for you. It's a sacrifice given over totally. They say when a sacrifice is offered on the altar, there's nothing left. Everything, Lord, is yours. Nothing left. It's all yours, Lord. That is our appropriate response. Now, if we give over 24 hours a day, seven days a week to God, it means we straight away, of course, hit a problem. Because the current thinking today, we hear it, it's been stated again just in these last few days, that religious people should leave their beliefs at the church door. I think it was said religious believers should leave their faith at the temple door. That was the expression that was used. You don't bring it in to the public arena. You don't bring what you believe into everyday life. You leave it at the church door. It's interesting that only a few years ago, the criticism that was brought against us was exactly the opposite of that. that. People used to say, the problem with you Christians is you're a load of hypocrites because actually you're, you're no different from the rest of us. 
Well, now we're being told you mustn't be any different from the rest of us. You've got to leave what you believe in the church door because that's faith. Paul is saying, hey, wait a minute. What God has done, what Jesus did on the cross, was not just to give us something to do with our spare time. This was not just that we had a particular activity on a Sunday. This was buying us for God. Our life is His. We don't just think about God here and then go out to merge Him with the world and just be different. No, no, no. We belong to Him totally. It means in your job, you are a Christian, whatever you are there. Whatever your, your job title, put the word Christian in front of it. That's who you are because you're God's. Everything is His. Offer your body, what you go around in, what I go around in every day, that's His totally. As a student at university, you are a Christian student. What subject you're doing, you're doing it as a Christian. Where you're, what your job is, that is as a Christian. Whatever. In your leisure time, it's as a Christian. As a neighbor, you're a Christian neighbor. It affects everything. Offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And this, the translation here says, is your spiritual act of worship. I guess all different translations are going to translate this one differently because it's, it's so difficult to capture the meaning of the, the words that are being translated here. The, the word uh, spiritual could be translated rational, logical, reasonable, or spiritual. It means all of those things. And what's translated here as act of worship could be service. It could, it's a word that applies to temple worship. It's got a, quite a, a range of meaning. What it's saying then is that our spiritual worship, our reasonable, logical worship of God is everyday life. Everyday life given to Him. Spiritual worship is all of life devoted to Him. It's not just music. When we, if the word worship just means music, the band, singing, the time of worship. Yeah, all of that is great. Of course, we want to worship God with all the fiber of our being. But actually, if we mouth words and like tunes, and the rest of the week, actually, we're not living for God. We're not actually applying the truth into everyday life. What kind of worship is that? So I'll sing the words to you. Remember Matt Redman's song, I'm Coming Back to the Heart of Worship. It's all about you when the music fades. The problem with that song, which is so profound, is it's a song. And so we can actually like the tune and forget what it's actually saying. Actually, it's, it's not about singing. It's not about worship in that sense. It's about you, Lord. And he's the Lord. Therefore, that changes everything. This is the temple worship of your life when you live for him. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This is your reasonable worship. This is your spiritual worship. When you bring a sacrifice, me, 
here I am, Lord, me, all of me, everything that involves my life, here it is, I give it to you. Because, Lord, you gave everything to me. Everything that I am is because of your grace. So I'm for you. I recognize you've bought me. I've got no rights to everything, anything anymore. I'm yours, Lord, and I voluntarily, gladly hand myself over. I urge you, brothers, Paul says, this is the decision we need to make. It's a response. A decision is called for. But when we've done that, let's suppose we all this morning, wouldn't it be wonderful, but let's suppose this morning we all make that decision and say, yep, we, we understand that. We are giving ourselves from this moment on, all of life is handed over to God. And we walk out from here knowing we have made that decision. What happens next? Do we just kind of look back to this Sunday when we made that decision? Well, no, actually a process begins. And that's what Paul speaks about in verse 2 here. The process that follows on from this decision, offering our body as a living sacrifice, do not conform any longer or stop conforming to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Stop conforming. The implication of that, here in this translation, don't conform any longer. The implication is actually this is what is happening unless we stop it. Conforming is what is happening. Now something's got to happen. You've got to stop that. Unless we stop it, we'll be conforming. Because it's an unseen pressure. And we might say, yeah, but I don't conform. No, Paul, the Bible says we are doing it unless we stop it. Unless we deliberately stop conforming, we will be conforming. Because there's a majority view. Conforming is when we're being shaped by the majority view. We're being shaped by what everyone else does. And we might say, oh, I'm not influenced by other people. Yeah, of course we are. We live in a democracy, and in a democracy, laws are shaped by the majority will. Laws reflect the will of the majority. That's how it is. And those laws then establish norms that affect what we think. And if you've been around as long as I have, you've seen some quite startling laws introduced that kind of shock many decent people when those laws are passed. And then within, I guess you can give five years, ten years, it becomes the norm. And then generally people accept it. And you see this kind of gradual erosion of standards. You know, a law will be introduced with all kinds of safeguards, and then the safeguards get eroded, and it moves on. And you see it happening, and it affects the church. It affects what Christians believe, because this is the world we live in. Right now, there's a bit of a battle on what's the meaning of marriage. So the Minister for Equality, I think that's what she calls herself, or what she is called, says marriage is just a rite of passage. All right. I thought it was a covenant for life between one man and woman. No, 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 no. No, it's, it's just a rite of passage to which everyone should have access. Well, 
there is a petition on. I hope you're signing it. As we've said about it in Ebite, a, a, a petition to say, no, we believe in marriage. Yeah, but of course, the government, as it happens today, are committed to changing the law on that. And they said they're going to listen to people, but they're not going to change their mind. You think, oh, that's nice of you. You will listen. You're not going to change your mind. So that law will undoubtedly go through where marriage is then available to people of the same sex or whatever. It's just a rite of passage. We can, as Christians, be shocked by that. We sign the petition. Five years' time, what? Well, it's become the norm. It's become the norm. What about euthanasia? Well, we... We don't use that word anymore. It's dignity now we're talking about, and it's the right to die. Standards change. We say, no, it's wrong. But five years' time, ten years' time, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. What's our view of these issues, of marriage, of one man, one woman, exclusively for life. What's our view? Seeing the other scandal this week about abortion, gender discrimination, people aborting an unborn child because they don't like its gender. It's outrageous. And then the same week, you get someone uh, jailed for murdering a pregnant mother and her baby, and it's a double murder. The, the unborn child was killed, and that's murder. Then we're talking about abortion. What are we talking about here? Oh, well, it's, it's the norm. Hey, we're living in a messed up world. Does it shape our values? Do we just go with it? And then, you, well, you can keep applying it to so many different areas. What Paul is saying here is it will shape you unless you deliberately stop it. Do not conform any longer. You've handed your life over to God. He's saying, I have changed sides. I used to belong to the world. Now I belong to God. I have, I have changed sides. I was under the power of the devil and all his lies. Now God has redeemed me out of that. I'm now in the kingdom of God. I cannot have the values that belong there while I'm here. I'm in Christ. And my life is His. I'm offering it to Him as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to Him. It means my value system has got to be holy and pleasing to Him. Everything is His because I've changed sides. I don't belong there anymore. I now belong in the kingdom of God. So I'm not going to conform to that. Hey, that's a deliberate act. It's a kind of saying no to that. But nature abhors a vacuum. If we say no to all of that, what's going to take its place? I know what I don't believe in. But what do I believe in? Well, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's when we say, this is what I believe. And Paul here speaks about an ongoing lifetime process. Wouldn't it be wonderful if right now this morning we could give uh, an invitation for people who want to come forward and be transformed and you come forward, we lay hands on you, oh, transformed. Not going to happen. Paul here is speaking about a process 
an ongoing process of transformation through an ongoing process of mind renewal. It's, it takes a lifetime. Continually, your mind being renewed. How does that happen? Well, by actively taking God's word into yourself. Actively getting hold of it. Not just knowing it. It's great to memorize scripture. It's great to have scriptures at your fingertips where you can quote them. But that's not the same as having your mind renewed. Your mind is renewed when you go hold of it. Let me just give you an illustration. This last week, um, we had, uh, the, you know, we have the, the courses on Wednesday evenings. Uh, and I was uh, with the, the, the group looking at handling money. And we were I was trying to deal with the, the question of insurance. And in the course of that, I, I reeled out a whole sequence of scriptures. And I said, uh, we'll, we'll just look at these scriptures, just hear them, and then see how and if they apply to our subject. And so I'm reading out these scriptures. One of the wonderful scriptures that I read out uh, was uh, from 1 Peter. Uh, and in 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Wonderful verse. Cast your anxiety on him. It matters to him about you. And so I, I said that with some enthusiasm to the group. I hope they caught the enthusiasm. So then when I was home, I thought, why am I worrying about the possible date for an operation I've got to have on this cancerous lump? Why am I worrying about what's got to be cancelled and what's got to be rearranged and when it's going to happen? And I thought, you've just quoted that verse. You wanted the guys to get hold of it. You haven't got hold of it. You're still anxious. And the penny dropped. And I'm looking at this passage. Be, re be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's not enough to quote the verse. It's not enough to be able to expound. Well, in the Greek, it really means, yeah, fine. But actually, your mind is renewed when you say, I'm taking hold of that. And so right now, I cast my anxiety on you, Lord, and I'm not taking it back. I'm giving it to you because I know it matters to you concerning me. That's what the verse says. You do it. Ah, oh. I hope you notice I'm transformed <laughs> a little bit. It's an ongoing process. It's an ongoing process. Getting hold of truth. Saying, I believe it. And then change comes. It's not a once for all thing. It can't be. It's right through life on a daily basis. We're, not, we're refusing to conform. We're refusing to conform to the norms in the world. Dare I say... We're refusing to conform to the norms in Christianity. We're refusing to go what Christians generally say with what Christians generally say is normal. We're not. We refuse to conform to what tradition has dumped on us. We're saying, "What does the Bible say?" I want to be transformed by my mind being renewed by what God says. And if it's out of step with what generally the church is experiencing or doing, well, I'm not being, I'm not being shaped by that. I, I want to be transformed by my mind being renewed by God's wonderful word. Why? 
Because I'm his. Because you're his. He saved you. Not to give you a worthwhile hobby. Not to give you a spare time activity. Not so you like a certain sort of song. But so that everything is his. And then, well, having given ourselves to him, having said no to what the world is doing, we're taking hold of truth. But notice this, we've got to do it. It can't be done to us. Be transformed, it seems to imply something's got to happen to us, but people, Paul is telling people to be transformed. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It is something I have got to do. No one can minister, minister it into me. No one can lay hands on me and impart it to me. I have got to take hold of truth on a daily basis, an hourly basis, and let my mind be renewed so I am transformed and I'm no longer living how I used to live. You've got to do it. It's an individual responsibility. It can't be done to us. But when we do that, when that process is working through, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Then, and I'd suggest only then. Because if we haven't handed ourselves over totally to God, God's will is always going to be a problem. It's always going to cut across what we think are our best interests. It's always going to be a bit inhibiting, a bit restricting. It's always going to be, well, I'm not sure I want to go there. And you think, get back to Jesus in the garden. He's saying, not my will, but yours. What is God's will? It's the cross. <sighs> yeah, but his life belongs to God. Your will, Lord. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. How could that cup be acceptable? Because he belongs to God. Well, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, it says, you'll be able to test and approve. In Greek, it's only one word. Translated here, two words, test and approve. Because the word actually conveys both. It's a bit like you're invited somewhere for a meal. And, um, or maybe it, it, it's a buffet kind of meal. And there's something there. And you think, I'm not sure. I've, I've never had that before. I'm not sure I fancy it. And someone says, well, try some. So rather nervously, tentatively, you put a little spoon in and think, hmm, yeah, it's good. I'll have some more. You have tested and you have approved. Hmm, that's nice. I'll have some more. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, nervously, we go for the will of God. Hmm, that's good. I want more. God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will is actually wonderful. It's wonderful to him. It is good because it's God's will. It's pleasing to him. It's what pleases God. And it's perfect. How does it seem to us? Well, we need to test it and approve it. Say, yes, Lord, your will is wonderful. Not my will, but yours for my future for everything, for 
prosperity, poverty, this nation, another nation, marriage, singleness, whatever. Lord, your will. I, I've got a will. I've got thoughts in this. There are things I want, things I've always wanted, things my parents wanted me to have, whatever. But Lord, your will. Not that, not that. I love your will because I've given myself to you. My mind is being renewed and my life is being transformed. And now your will that once would have seemed a bit of a problem to me. It's good. It's good. Other people won't understand it, but then I'm not on their side. I'm now in your kingdom. Your will is wonderful. People can't understand why I want to go this way. People don't understand why I don't have the things that they've got. It's your will, Lord. And hey, it's sweet. It's lovely. I want to go that way. Sometimes the will of God is a major challenge, but actually it's still good if your mind is renewed with truth. Now Paul says, therefore I urge you, saying, don't just enjoy the truth. Yes, do enjoy it, but don't just enjoy it. See, it has a therefore. It has implications. You can't just look at all of that, this wonderful landscape where you say, oh God, your paths are beyond tracing out, your judgment's unsearchable. can't look at all of that and say, yeah, fine, but now it's, it's real life. No, this is life. And it changes everything. And Lord, I want to go your way. Can you just imagine what the church of the Lord Jesus Christ would look like if people were responding to what this says here? Can you imagine how vibrant it would be? How sold out? How effective? How dynamic? If we really saw the wonderful grace of God and we said, yep, I'm yours, Lord. Absolutely yours. No time out. I'm yours. Totally. A a group of people delighted to obey God. Wow. But that's the church. It's what Jesus purchased. And so Paul says, I urge you, I exhort you. He's not pleading. He's, He's giving a command here. In view of God's mercies, and they are so many, Now hand yourself over, 24-7. I'm for God. I'm not conforming any longer to that. I'm going to stop it. It's deliberate. I'm stopping being shaped by that. And it's not a vacuum. My mind is now getting hold of truth. It's transforming my life. It's transforming my values. It's transforming everything. Lord, I delight to do your will. Hey, see his mercy. Give yourself unreservedly to him. Live it out and be satisfied in a way you couldn't be any other way because his will is good, it's pleasing, and it's perfect. Let's pray.